0: Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. Uh, we're welcoming back one of our earliest podcast guests. I think that Peter Weiner might have been on in the first week of the Bulwark Podcast or certainly the second
1: week. So, Peter, uh, very good to have you back again. Appreciate it. Thanks, Charlie. It's always great to be uh, on the podcast. It's one of my favorites. So thanks for having me again. Well, the most
0: important thing that we're going to talk about today and the thing I'm going to get the most reaction on, Peter, I have to uh, just give you the heads up on this, is uh, the fact that uh, I f- I finished season four of Shetland last night, and it is absolutely awesome. And so I want to thank everybody that that gave me that uh, that uh, that suggestion. Um, we, we've sort of been going through the the Bill Crystal slash audience suggestions for shows to binge watch: you know, Broadchurch, Hinterland uh just finished shetland there's another season coming but i but i also will say that i'm on on sort of on the side my my thing on the side is watching the british cop show called uh, in the line of duty the, the line of duty um which is too intense for my wife so i have to watch that on my own It's but, but it is uh it is really awesome it is uh although um for people who are not into dark cynicism probably not the thing for you if if you're looking for something feel good or see i i have this weird thing peter where sometimes watching really dark you know dystopian type things makes reality look less awful do you know
1: what i mean i I do know what (laughs) i do know what you mean i i understand the tropism toward toward watching the dark to, to to make the current circumstances better than they are
0: well, speaking of dystopian, um, right before we start, I mentioned, you know, our daily dose of uh dystopian polls. You've seen, and I know you've commented on this, the poll that that uh that says that finds that fifty-three percent of Republicans believe that Donald Trump is still the president or say that. So, you know, with all the caveats that people may say all kinds of stuff to pollsters because they're positioning. I mean, we're we are in a world that is like whatever you thought things were going to be. you sort of like move, you know, move the the you know Overton window of dystopia, you know, one step over. So, what do you, what do you make of the fact that fifty three percent of Republicans tell pollsters, n- not just that that Donald Trump won the election, not just they believe the the, the big lie, but they think he's still president.
1: Yeah, it's, it's really disturbing, um, but it's not surprising. I mean, this is the world that Donald Trump helped create and the Republican Party that, that decided uh, to, to uh, throw its hat over the wall um, with him very early on. And, you know, I, th- this is a world that I'm sure Donald Trump is happy to have created. I, I imagine that some of the Republicans who have been complicit in this probably have mixed feelings about it. But um, this is what they did. This is the road that they've chosen. Um, and this is what happens if you repeat uh, a lie over and over and over again. I, I, th- I think that a lot of Republicans thought that they could get away with this. They didn't think it was real, um, but, but it would uh, feed the, b- the base and the anger of the base. And then once Trump left office, things would snap back. That's not how life works. That's not how the human mind works. The other thing I'd say, Charlie, is that there are some uh, conspiracy theories that people can believe in, UFOs and other things, that are that that are odd uh, but not pernicious this is odd and pernicious because this is uh internalizing a certain view of the world and the political world that can catalyze a lot of very dangerous stuff including um violence which we've seen and which i fear that we're going to see more of and this is a lie that goes to the heart of self-government and of democracy so this isn't just any other conspiracy theory to embrace this one is a very, very dangerous one.
0: Okay, that, that's exactly what I wanted to talk to you about. You had the piece in the Atlantic last week. Trump is marching down the road to political violence, and 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 I know that that people you know might think, okay, we've heard this before, we've we've had these warnings before. But I, I guess, and I think you probably feel the same way. You want to sort of put a, a, a line under it and say, no, this is real. This is really dangerous. Um, you know, we we kind of. Probably should have understood the trajectory of events over the last five years, but it's really, really clear now. So let's talk about this because you' you're talking about the prospect of more and even greater violence and and that it is it's embedded in this mindset. And I, I, I mentioned to you earlier when we were chatting before we, we started what I thought was really powerful in your piece in the Atlantic was your description of the mindset in maga world which i think is really important for people to understand and a lot of our a lot of our listeners may think they know what's going on here but i think you did a really good job of of trying to get inside the heads of maga folks and then explain why it's dangerous so first of all so what is the mindset what's going on how is this lie playing in their heads
1: yeah, th- thanks. It's it's an important question because I think if we don't understand that, we really don't know what we're dealing with, and we may not be alert, fully alert to to, to the dangers. Um, you know, the way that I describe the mindset um, of of MAGA world is that they believe because they've been told that they're victims of a monstrous injustice. So when when Donald Trump sends out statements saying that, that they they he and they were victims of the crime of the century. Um, we may hear that as the ravings of a seventy four year old sociopath in a lago uh, who crashes wedding parties and dismiss it. And I understand that temptation. That's not how they hear it. What they're hearing is that uh, a leader that leader that they revered was removed from office by illegitimate means. um and that this is um, one of the uh, great crimes, democratic crimes. In history, um, and it was perpetrated by people who want to destroy them, and destroy their children, and to destroy their world. So they've been cheated out of power, um, and so they then begin to think, well, what are the weapons at our disposal to undo this grave injustice? And the reality is that for some of them, violence is there. I don't think for most of them. Well, I'm certain for most of them, it's not the the the, the uh, first uh, choice that they would that they would, they would reach for. It's not what they would prefer. But they believe that sometimes violence is necessary as a recourse to undo grave injustice. That's why when you hear references to the American Revolution and so forth, again, some people will hear that. A lot of people will hear that and think this, these are just sort of tin foil nuts, you know that imagining themselves as, as uh, soldiers in, in, in the new American Revolution. But that's how they see themselves. And we know, by the way, from, from many, many statements at this point of the people who uh, were part of the insurrection uh, on, on January 6th, that that's what they said. They said that the president invited me here. They believe they were doing their patriotic duty. Um, so that's the kind of mindset that, that we're uh, that we're dealing with. And um, and that, I think, is why it's, it's a particularly dangerous period. I'll say one other thing, Charlie, which is I just think it's important – um, because a lot of critics of Trump and Trump supporters, and, and I am and you are, I don't think they actually talk to Trump supporters uh, or listen to them. And I've had conversations that I'm sure you've had with, with people who are Trump supporters, but also to read the accounts uh, of, of people um, and, and to understand that. last thing I'll say on, the, on this point is that there's disturbing polling evidence and Daniel Cox at the American Enterprise Institute, which of course is a conservative think tank. Um, found there was an alarmingly high number of Republicans who believe that violence uh, right. may be uh, uh, something of, of a resort that uh, that Trump supporters need to reach to to undo this this what they perceive as injustice.
0: So this is not just anecdotal. I mean, there there is polling data that would suggest that this is widespread. And okay, so you, you know, you went through in your article just, and just now you went through this this mindset and conclude this is how the road to political violence is paved. And, and I, I want to stick with this point because, and I don't want to be misunderstood, but if you understand this thought process, what they have been told, what they believe, it's a coherent worldview. It actually is logically consistent, right? If, in fact, you believe that the country is under siege, that this great crime has been committed by people who want to destroy you, who hate you, who are dismantling this country, then- um, why would uh, you not look at the possibility of using extreme measures? And and you know, I I think I've done this before on the podcast, but I would encourage people just try. Imagine you know if it was the other way around, what what would you be prepared to do? And I think that's the the kind of thing that that if you put yourself in this position, you start to realize that that violence is not an irrational response and i'm not defending this i'm just i'm just saying why this is so real that each one of these lies that we keep talking about feed into this narrative and peter at this point we can't really be in denial that there are consequences to these ideas can we
1: That's exactly right. I mean, we saw this play out, of course, uh, on January 6th with the the insurrection, uh, lethal insurrection on on the Capitol. Um, But that was such a shock to the system that I think a a lot of people understandably thought, look, this has never happened before. It'll never happen again. This is kind of a one off. And let's hope it is. My concern um, is that we see the links in, in this violent chain. Um, that, that, are, that are in place. Uh, you have the lie itself, the pernicious lie, the repetition of the lie, and a lie that has roots. So that's one. The second thing that you have is an existential fear, this sense that we talked about, which is if they win, um, then it, almost everything that we know and love will be destroyed. So there is a, th- there is a deep um, sort of commitment to a dark narrative Cat- catastrophizing mindset that is at, at, at place. By the way, one of the reasons or one of the tip-offs of that catastrophizing mindset is if you have conversations with people, say on abortion, as I have had, pro- pro-life people who are part of MAGA world, and you point out to them that the number of abortions is the lowest number that, since before Roe v. Wade, And that the number of abortions and the rate and the ratio have gone down steadily for 20 years, whether it's a Republican or Democratic president, regardless of the composition of the Supreme Court. You would think that that point would bring some degree of of celebration, not that they think the struggle is over, but that at least massive progress has been made. But that's not the reaction you get, because that is good news that runs against what their mindset is. And for them, it creates a kind of cognitive dissonance, so that so they block it out. So there's that. That's the second one, which is this existential fear, the sense that the culture is absolutely under assault. And then the third, a third link in this chain, is a deep hatred um, for the other side. And both sides have this. This is, this is what scientists refer to, affective polarization, where basically the hate hatred for the other side. Is more intense than than the the loyalty and, and affection that you have for for your own side, um, and so you have this mindset. So we have the polling evidence, and we have the precedent of of the uh, of the sixth, uh, and you have these people who have constructed, as you said, a, a, a kind of kind con- of connected out world, given their flawed and and malicious uh, premises, that will lead them uh, to where they are, and. We do know from these conversations with people who stormed the Capitol on the 6th, if you gave them sodium pentothal, they would absolutely say what they were doing was a patriotic act and they were following the lead, the, the lead of their commander in chief, um, Donald Trump. So this is, this is um, as I said, this is dangerous stuff. I hope I'm wrong and I'm not necessarily predicting widespread violence. I just think we need to take it more seriously than a lot of people um, have and understand uh, what's um, underneath all of this. It's driving it.
0: Well, I don't, I don't think you're wrong. So one of the things that our critics would say or have said about us in the past is that um, we keep saying the same thing over and over and over again. And I'm sure you've had this feeling like, okay, I'm writing this column. I've written this column 50 times about the danger of Trump, about what it's doing to the country. So I guess the question is, can we disaggregate this a little bit? What's new? And what's old? Um, you and I have been in that that small group who've been arguing since he came down the golden escalator that Donald Trump posed a real threat to American democratic norms. So we've written that we wrote that in 2015, 2016, 17, 18, 19, 20. What's different in 21, or is it just basically us saying we told you so?
1: Yeah, it's 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 a it's a really good question. Yeah, yeah and the. the in and I'd say there's, there are certain things. One is, you know, as, as writers and commentators, I think this is probably your philosophy too, um, what we're supposed to do uh, is to speak the truth as best we understand it um, and try to be faithful to to that. It doesn't mean that uh, we have answers to all of the problems. It doesn't mean that we think that our warnings will be heeded. Um, it doesn't mean a lot of things. What it does mean is that you try with as much uh, honesty and integrity as you can to try and speak to the moment and try and alert people to what's what's going on. Um, whether people accept those uh, those cautions uh, and, and believe uh, in in those critiques, you know, that's 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 up to them. In terms of what is different, um, I don't I don't think we've reached an inflection point, but I do think that something is happening that not enough people um, are are aware of. And that is that while Republican identification with Trump personally is less than it has uh, been in the past, which is inevitable. I mean, he's not president. He's off of social media. Republicans are are not identifying any less with the kinds of conspiracy and anti-democratic impulses that have been associated with Trump in the past five years. And the worry is that those impulses are becoming uh, key to Republican self-identity independent of Trump. Yes, and that is not a good thing. Um basically the poisons were unleashed and um and even with Trump receding uh from 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 the picture uh, and off the stage it's going on. Um and that is ju- uh, just a different level of um of or uh, yeah, it's a different level of threat. Uh, obviously having Trump as president created its own set of problems because he was sociopathic and he had more power than anybody in the world so getting him out was w- was essential um no but i think also- uh, yeah no. go ahead
0: no, and I, but I and and you're right and I think that that's the analysis that that I've been sort of wrestling with um because I do think that what we've seen happen since January 6 does feel like it's something new and I think you know you put your finger on it when you said we're we're headed down the road to violence maybe it was theoretical before but 5 years of marinating in lies and outrage and division it has a consequence it has a consequence to the moral fabric of the country, of people that we, in a certain sense, I I, I think that we have become addicted to the dopamine hit of outrage and division. So that, that even though he's gone, it's not gotten better, it's gotten worse. And I do think that what's new is what you describe this widespread acceptance of all or nothing, um, you know, a form of politics that might lead to violence and, and, and people need to understand this, that sometimes it's I, I think that sometimes people sort of shut off like, OK, you know, all those people on the right, they're all crazy, they're all bad, they're all racist. So therefore, we put that in the box. But it, it's it is evolving and things are turning uglier at a very rapid pace.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I, that's actually very well stated. Which is, I do think that there's an addictive quality to this. I think it's a psychologically addictive quality, and you know there are psychological addictions, like there are physiological addictions. And what what is it about a, an addiction that you have to understand? It is that there is a craving in in people to to uh, whether it's drugs or, or cigarettes. Um, or or alcohol, where the body craves to have those things, and you can get these kind of psychological addictions. Where, as you said, it's a sort of a dopamine rush. I mean, they've they've done studies. Brain science is actually quite helpful uh, here. So we we have some sense of what's happening in these people's you know mindsets. The other thing that is important to do, and I, I know you have done this over time, is one has to disaggregate uh, among um, Trump supporters. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are the really hardcore ones, the ones who've committed violence and who are absolutely unreachable. And then there are some number of people uh, who uh, are leaning in that direction uh, or they're, they feel like they're Trump supporters because they really despise the left, um, but they're just not as, as, as far gone. Um, so this there, there's a spectrum, and and you know, when thinking about what to do uh, about uh, about that world MAGA world, um, you know there are different strategies to to uh, to to uh, reach different uh, different people, or in some cases there are people who are, who are simply um, beyond reach.
0: Yeah, I mean, so some of them are just simply transactional, and and you you saw some of. The, uh, you know, non-true believers stick their heads up uh, above the, the the parapet briefly after January 6th. You had that moment when when uh, it, it seemed like Kevin McCarthy had a moment of lucidity or courage or whatever, uh, Mitch, uh, Mitch McConnell. And then, of course, they all went back to went back to normal. So talk to me a little bit about uh, Liz Cheney uh, and, and your take on her, because it is it has been extraordinary watching her. Um, how unbending she's been. And now she's under fire from both the left and the right. Justin Amash is saying, Hey, she shouldn't be a hero. She should have spoken out earlier, which obviously has, you know, some truth to it. Uh, she's being attacked on the left because she refused to say in the interview over the weekend that she opposed the voter bills taking place in the state. So give me where, where, what are you thinking about Liz Cheney and, and, and her position right now?
1: Yeah, I um you know I worked with with Liz in, in the George W Bush uh, administration um and um I admire her. I don't always di- agree with her and I actually did have disagreements with her um during during the Trump presidency because she was one of the people that I wish had spoken spoken out sooner and louder. And I think uh, that Mitt Romney is really the person who, who has been uh the most impressive throughout the Trump presidency because he spoke out um you know earlier and louder than anybody else. He cast the vote for, for impeachment and um, and all the rest. Having having said that, um I I think uh Liz Cheney is his has been outstanding um and been um almost a heroic figure, or at least not a heroic necessarily, but a very courageous figure. Um, I think for her, it it was relatively simple, which is that what happened first on November 3rd, which was the refusal to accept the election results, and certainly what happened on January 6th with the insurrection, was just a bright line that he crossed um, where she said, this cannot go on. And I think for her, it's part of her um, philosophy of American government and self-government and her roots with her family, deep ties to the institution of Congress, uh, the American system of government, checks and balances, uh, and a sense of, of, of what is morally and ethically right. And, um, and the, the Cheneys, if they believe something is morally and ethically right or wrong, they'll say it and they'll stand up for it. And um, to have that kind of backbone, that kind of courage has been so manifestly lacking in the Republican party for the, for the last five years. Should she have spoken out earlier? You know, I wish she had, but this is such an important moment. And it really has, whether, whether you like what she's said in the past or not, I just think that you have to acknowledge her courage and this moment. And I think if, if, if liberals or or conservatives who have been Trump critics uh, don't celebrate what she's done and don't stand with her and don't support her. They're making a huge error because this is a moment unlike any other moment because the events of January 6th were unlike any other event. Um, and she is speaking the truth in unvarnished ways. And you need people to do that. And other people can do other things. They can w- maybe work more behind the scenes. Um, but you need people like Liz Cheney. Um, to speak uh, the truth, speak truth to power, to be unwavering and also, quite frankly, Charlie, to inspire uh, other people who have been saying this because she is a uh, someone who is uh, in in Congress um, and she does have a public platform. So I think she's been she's been great and I hope she, she stays at it.
0: Yeah and, and Adam Kinzinger as well who you've uh, written about. Yeah, um, he's been
1: terrific yeah, as well. But,
0: and and my, my advice to you know people on the left who you know are you know nitpicking uh, is it if you think this is an existential threat act like it. Okay, so let's talk about a couple of other things that are happening now in terms of the of the real ugly divisions that may not have anything to do directly with Donald Trump uh, today is the anniversary of the death of George Floyd. And so there's a lot of discussion about uh, how that's affected the country. Um, I mentioned a little bit earlier, there's this really just, I think, kind of disturbing poll, this Axios-Ipsos poll, America one year after George Floyd, and shows this massive divide about the state of race relations, about equal rights, not between white and black Americans, but between white Republicans and white Democrats. So he, here's, here's the, one of the questions, Peter. Our country has made the change, do you agree with this, that our country has already made all the changes needed to give black Americans equal rights with white Americans. We've done enough. 79% of white Republicans say we've already done enough. You know, um, compared to um, white uh, Democrats, um, you know, 12, 12%. So there is really a sense right now, uh, and um, among on, on the right, um and and you you see this in the debate over critical race theory and a lot of other things. They we really are seeing a a moment where the attitudes toward racial equality, racial equity, all of these things are really polarized. And I, I get the sense that that's being exploited as well.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. I completely agree with you. Um, it just seems like Charlie every to, to a degree um, beyond anything I've ever experienced. I'd say first, politics is invading almost every nook and cranny of American life, including Bible studies and 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 and, and churches and you know book clubs just across the board. Yeah, so it's it's invading everything. And the second thing that it's doing is it's making it very, very difficult to have uh, honest and real, uh, discussions about issues. Now, it's always been difficult in politics because uh, because of the nature of, of politics. But everything is is so tribalistic now that it, that things have to be all or nothing, and it's all zero sum. So let's take the issue of, of race. And my own views on this is uh, I, I, aligned, I, I suppose, with with Barack Obama and, and and others, which is that we've made tremendous progress from where we have been. Um, but we were at an awful point, whether it was slavery or segregation. And the laws passed and that was important, but attitudes don't always change. And there, uh, are, are, uh, there's residual racism uh, that exists in this country. Uh, it existed in the Republican party to a degree that I had not anticipated. Uh, I think both of us knew that, 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 that there were fringe elements um, in, in the Republican party and in the country at large, were racist. Uh, but it turned out that racial appeals had, had a lot more traction than uh, than, than I knew about. <clears throat> um, and in terms of the issue of race itself, uh, it, it seems like it's just hard to have the position which is <clears throat> we've made progress and that the left needs to be careful with the 1619 project <clears throat> and right. the charges of, <clears throat> you know, promiscuous charges of of systematic racism and what that means. And it can exist in, 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 in certain institutions, um, but it can go too far. And people who, who, who are white and are on the right, um, you know, they hear those charges and they get riled up uh, and their response is that there's not a problem at all when I think there is clearly and manifestly a problem um, that is going on and that we still have to grapple with this, with this issue. It's, it's not as acute as it was in the past. But it is still deeply problematic. The other thing I'll say, Charlie is you know my views have evolved on this i I wrote a piece it was actually when I was blogging for commentary in 2014 and it was uh, I think the precipitating event was the uh what is it, the Cli and Bundy event in, in uh, oh, yeah. issues in the West? and th- there were manifestations of racism and charges of racism and and some uh, congressional aides, uh, I think for, for maybe for, for rand Paul or or for his father. In any event, um I wrote a piece in which um, I uh, admitted that I had thought that racism had receded more than it had, and that, I, I as a white person um, had a certain perspective on life and it was very different than if I had a black experience. Um, and if you were a black person in America today, the, the 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 racism that you would encounter, the slights that you would encounter, the obstacles that you would encounter are real and they exist. And we have to acknowledge that and to try and overcome that. Um, but a lot of People who are white, by virtue of their experience, their life experience, they, they, those incidents are foreign to them. And so they think that it's just done and over that this, you know, 64 uh, and 65 right. legislation on, on voting uh, rights and, and on civil rights. Um, basically, took care of it, and everything is right. fine. And if we just stopped talking about races, racism, things would be much better. And I just don't think that that's uh, that's true. And and the George Floyd uh, incident, which happened a year ago, the, the the tragedy and 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 the ugliness and the awfulness of that incident underscored some deeper reality that exists that we can't ignore. So that was the consensus on the right
0: that that we had dealt with all of this, and it was time to move on. I mean I think that that was kind of the broad consensus it underlay a lot of the opposition to things like affirmative action and then of course you have these shocks like what's been happening with George Floyd and other things including uh maybe a deeper understanding of history I've talked about the Tulsa race massacre several times on this on this on this podcast but what I see happening right now is on the right at a moment when I think it would really behoove us to go and reexamine our positions on all of this and and where we stand and whether or not there is a a principled conservative approach to equity and equality and uh, and justice on all these but that debate is being shut down you you turn on fox and they've gone to the basically gone to the, you know, narrative or the memes that that any discussion of race can be dismissed as critical race theory or woke or being, you know, uh, white, uh, you know, liberal guilt. You're seeing themes on Fox News about the great replace, replacement theory that I never imagined that I would see in the mainstream of the conservative. I mean, you know, you and I both knew there were the Pat Buchanan's out there. You know, we only knew that they were there. Um, but now- they're feeling emboldened, and, and, I, and I think that that's the real tragedy because it tells me that peop, that Republicans and people on the right are just simply not going to move on on this, on this issue. They are not going to engage in the kind of introspection and the kind of discussion and the kinds of policy um, debates that they need to have because you have the demagogues that shut it down. And you're seeing this in the polling that people just don't want white white Republicans just don't you know, don't want to talk about race issues in America anymore.
1: Yeah, I I entirely agree. And indeed, the polling shows that um, whites, at least white Republicans, uh, feel like that discrimination is more pointed against them than African Americans and and other people. So they believe that now they are the objects of of racial discrimination, which plays into this larger phenomenon, which we've talked about before, which is um, the mindset of grievance, resentment, and victimization on the right. And I think, you know, I remember years ago, where you were speaking out about this in the 90s, this was pretty common, uh, among the within the conservative world, which was this notion of the victimization mentality on the left. And yes. we who were conservatives, um, really were, were pretty tough on on that, the degree to which People on the right now, um, and Donald Trump is really the epitome of that. Who are constantly whining and complaining and feel like uh, they, they're victims, and the the coiled anger that's based on a sense of grievance uh, and and resentment. It's it's uh, it's difficult to to over overstate it. Um, we could really uh, make progress on this issue, um, and the reality is that, that African Americans in this country. Um, have, have had a terrible deal from the beginning. They still face real, real um, obstacles. Um, and this is America's original sin, and we haven't gotten over it. Um, but, um, but right now, you've got these figures like Tucker Carlson, who I think is clearly the most important and malicious figure uh, on Fox News and in the in the right wing media ecosystem. And as you said, this white replacement theory, and I, I mean, every week he he is almost, it has to be intentional, is saying things that are more and more outrageous and dangerous and provocative. Um, and that is feeding this mindset that we've been discussing. Um, so this, the synergy that's happening between uh, or among the base of the party, the media uh, and the, um, and lawmakers uh, in the Republican Party, uh, it's it's just a very dangerous uh, mix. Well, I
0: want to get to the, the upsurge of anti Semitic violence in, in just a moment, but because maybe it's obligatory, we have to mention Marjorie Taylor Greene. I'm saying that sarcastically, but I, I noticed that this morning she's doubling down on her Nazi Holocaust comparison between masking and vaccines. Um, she uh, tweeted out: "Vaccinated employees get a vaccination logo, just like the Nazis forced Jewish people to wear a gold star. Vaccine passports, mask mandates create discrimination against unvaxxed people. Blah blah blah." blah. So she's she's doubling down on this Nazi comparison. You know, I, I, we we could talk about Marjorie Taylor Greene, you know, endlessly, you know, and and the way she's being tolerated in the Republican Party, but it does strike me that that for a large class of Americans. The only moral standard that they know is Nazis. You know right. what I mean? It's sort of the impoverishment of our moral language yeah. that, that, that everything I don't like is Hitler because we don't. We're so uncomfortable in making other moral, ethical arguments.
1: Yeah, I entirely agree. I, I just think that the the Nazi analogy uh, sh- shouldn't be used uh, except yep. in the in the most extreme circumstances, and I quite agree with you. I, it's it's because people uh, know so little about about history that that seems to be the historical analogy that that they uh, that they reach for. I do want to say one thing about Marjorie Taylor Greene because I I, I agree with you, um, but I also would add a, a, a caveat. Um, she's clearly a person with a, with a diseased mind. She's not she's not well, um, and she sees her role as 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 to provoke people, um, and she says these insane things. And I understand the argument of of people who say, uh, like Damon Linker and others, who say basically don't pay attention to her. Mm-hmm. That's that's the oxygen that she wants. So I I get that. On the other hand, um, I think that it is important uh, to take a step back. Um, and realize what what is happening. I mean, this person um, is as crazy a member of Congress as there's probably ever been in, in American history. She is more popular with the base and the leadership of the Republican Party than Liz Cheney. Uh, is. Much,
0: much more. Yeah.
1: And she raised over three million dollars in the first quarter uh, of this year for her reelection campaign, which is a stunningly high figure, especially for a freshman member of Congress, especially for one who isn't on any committees. And um, so we have to take a step back from time to time um, and not get inured to just how insane this moment is and how dangerous it is. The fact that a person like this saying these things, you know, uh, and after the Jewish space lasers and the QAnon conspiracy theories and all the rest that she is basically a Republican in good standing, and that the leadership can't call her out—that they're too afraid to call her out—underscores what a diseased and dangerous party the Republican Party is is right now. Um, so, you know, it, it's it's uh, she's um, she's a nut, but uh, but she's a prominent knot.
0: No, um, and, and to, the, to this argument that we should just ignore these people and not give them oxygen, um, my response is we tried that. And how did it work out? Because I, I, I've been there over the years. I think you have as well, that we, we knew these people were out there and decided not to spend any time calling them out or um, stigmatizing them or maybe even purging them. Uh, we rolled our eyes, you know, knew they were in the corner. Um, But they were our allies. And so we kind of went along with, you know, as long as they were going to vote our same way, we're not going to pick a fight with them. And, and, And I think that turned out to be a disastrous miscalculation. So silence. We've already tried that. Let's pretend they don't exist. Let's not amplify them, because frankly, it doesn't matter. I mean, at, at, at this point, she's going to be amplified, whatever you and I do, whatever Damon Linker does, uh, she's going to be able to, uh, you know, speak to the base, raise a lot of money from the base. So the question is, what do people like, you know, who are in a position to sound the alarm do? Are we supposed to stand down, not push back? I, I just I think that's that's a total moral abdication.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's, that's well said. I'd be interested, Charlie, we can go on to, to the anti-Semitism. Yeah, yeah. I do want to speak to that. But what, at this point, at, at this juncture, so here we are in sort of in late, late May, when you think about what to do um, to, to repair the Republican Party, not necessarily that you think that it, that it, that it could happen, but if, if you somebody said, "Look, you know if if Mitt Romney and Liz Cheney called you and said, I, "This may not work." But tell us what the levers are here. What do we need to do, or what do we need to say? Maybe that's different than what we've been doing and saying that gives us the best chance of salvaging the Republican Party, which is essential for the party and for the country, because, as both of us know, it's it's essential that there be a healthy conservative uh, party in the country." Um what would you tell them what 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 do you think are the levers there what changes do you think need to be made uh, if if any
0: Well I'm I am as a fan of Don Quixote um, I'm in favor of tilting at windmills but I also understand what tilting at windmills means um, I I I do hope that courage is contagious that, that making these principles stands that has a wider audience than there might be apparent right now but I'm at the moment, Peter, at, uh, thinking that it's unrealistic to think that the Republican Party is going to be salvaged anytime soon, no matter what they do. However, see, this is the question. Do, do you make that final hopeless principled stand knowing that you might lose, but because you know this is where you, you stand and you can't do anything else, which seems to be Liz Cheney's position? You know, she was asked by by Jonathan Swan, "Why do you think you can fix the Republican Party?" And her answer was, "Well, because I'm I'm doing this because I think that it's right. I don't know that you can go beyond that. I don't have an answer, better than that."
1: Yeah. Now that, that that that's an impressive uh, answer. It's an honest answer, uh, and um, and maybe 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 one can't. But at any moment in time, um, all people can do is, uh, is is do what they think is right and to be faithful to the causes that they care about and let the chips fall where they may, and then you try and be prudent and strategic in terms of, of, right. of making those um, those arguments. I, I, I suppose if, in the end, if uh, the wreckage can, can can be repaired, it's going to require probably events to change, and maybe maybe it's simply the case that the Republican Party has to lose and lose and lose, uh, like the Labor Party in, in, in the United Kingdom from the late 70s to the early 90s, the Democratic Party uh, you know, from from Carter to, Dick, I mean, from uh, from uh, um, McGovern to to uh, Dukakis, and that created an opening for Tony Blair and Bill Clinton to really make reforms. And it, it may well be that the Republican Party, because it wasn't wiped out in 2020, um, there are just not enough people who who uh, are convinced that this is uh, Trumpism and staying with Trump is a losing proposition. And they may well believe that you break with Trump and Trumpism is a losing proposition.
0: Now, I heard somewhere that a political party needs to lose three consecutive elections before it's willing to rethink its position, and and uh, I, I don't know that we are there yet. So, Peter, we started talking about the danger of political violence uh, on on the right. L- let's 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 wrap up with with the actual violence that we're experiencing right now. And again, this is uh, it's new and it's old. Um, Anti-Semitic violence is not a new thing in this country, however. It appears in the last several days, several weeks to have really spiked uh, the number of incidents of people targeting Jews. And um, I, I, there, there does seem to be a, a difficulty among some of our progressive friends in calling out, there it's easy to call out anti-Semitism on the right, like Charlottesville. It's a little bit more awkward for some of them to call out anti-Semitism on the left. Um, your, your thoughts about what's happening right now?
1: Yeah, it's really disturbing to me. I mean, we've we, we've seen anti-Semitism, of course, historically. Uh, it was spreading throughout Europe in the last last decade. Um, there were real signs uh, that uh, that this was trouble it's been something that we've been blessedly free of more or less in the United States, but that is now, now ending. I think what I would say is that the very critique that the left makes of the right needs to be made of the left too, which is words have consequences and words shape moral sensibilities. And there are things that are being said uh, about, uh, about Israel um, uh, and about, uh, about Jewish people uh, that are shaping moral sensibilities and giving sort of a license for people now, to, uh, use violence against people who, who, who are Jewish. Um, you, you know, this is not a one-way street. Um, if you dehumanize people, um, there are consequences to, to, to that. Uh, I will say, uh, just to take a step back, um, you know, I view what's happening in the democratic party with alarm as it relates to, to Israel. Um, I've been hmm. a strong defender of Israel, um, from almost as long as I can remember being interested in politics, and never understanding what I what I perceived as a kind of double standard on the left um, against them, I I certainly uh, am open to and, and understand if there are particular policies that people agree with, or particular prime ministers in Israel that people disagree with. But in my estimation, the moral equivalence between Israel and Hamas um, is 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 morally. Uh, off the rails, um, and that Israel, given the circumstances that it faces and the real existential hatred that's directed at the at the Jewish state, um, they've acted um, with, with 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 astonishing prudence for the most part and care. Um, and you know, if you have a terrorist state that's that's uh, shooting missiles at you th- thousands at a time, you're going to respond. Um, Again, that doesn't mean that there aren't particular issues, whether they're the settlements or or housing or others, that people could take issue with. But I think the Democratic Party is, or at least elements of the Democratic Party, certainly the progressive wing of the Democratic Party is becoming, I think, um, almost anti-Israel in its its reflexes. And that... um, that that uh, that worries me, and that has consequences. Yeah, I think Joe Biden continues to get it right, but
0: you, but you're right; the the trend is troubling. Okay, so you want to do some punditry in real time? Sure. Okay, so even as and you you have probably haven't seen this, e- even as we have been speaking, Kevin McCarthy has emerged from his bunker and issued a statement condemning Marjorie Taylor Greene's comments. He said, "Marjorie, about her whole comparing the masks to, to the Holocaust, this is what he re- he said, Marjorie is wrong, and her intentional decision to compare the horrors of the Holocaust with wearing masks is appalling. The Holocaust is the greatest atrocity committed in history. The fact that this needs to be stated today is deeply troubling. Let me be clear. The House Republican Conference condemns this language. So that sounds good. But we've seen this before, haven't we, Peter? I mean, the question is: Will the base rally around Marjorie Taylor Greene, or are we beginning to see her being more isolated?
1: Yeah, I think we just have to let this the, yeah. let this play out because we saw with Kevin McCarthy after January sixth, he, yeah. he was critical of Donald Donald uh, Trump. Look, what we, one thing we know about Kevin McCarthy is that he's a weather vane. Uh, he's a person of astonishing weakness he has no spine, um, and he's hyper ambitious. So, uh, if he's doing this, if it's the right thing to do, it's only incidentally right. Uh, because he thinks it's in uh, his interest and the interest of his, um, of, of his caucus. It's not driven by, by moral considerations. I think that's a fair statement to make about Kevin McCarthy. The only thing I and I'm glad he's saying this. I hope he continues to say it. I guess what I'd say in response, uh, to, to Mr. McCarthy is, could you be as clear uh, on the insurrection of January 6th as you are with Marjorie Taylor uh, Green Because that was a bigger moment than this, as, as horrible as what she's saying. These are the words of, of, of a person who's obviously, as we've talked about, not psychologically well. January 6th was um, an insurrection uh, in, in an effort uh, to, to uh, cause a coup, uh, and it was violent, and it was unprecedented. And the fact that Kevin McCarthy is basically trying to push this down a memory hole, uh, and opposing a commission to look into what really happened, uh, and, uh, uh and, and has gone uh, silent or worse uh, on this. I mean, that's the real tell. So, uh, if you, if you can speak out against Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, about the, these, these awful comments, fine. Um, but uh, let's see that similar kind of courage when it comes to January 6. I can almost guarantee that i going see it. See, I wonder whether he had actually gotten permission from uh, the Orange
0: Versailles in order to be able to say this. Um, but with M- McCarthy, I-, I think that's this is the key. Is like good for him attacking. I mean, uh, criticizing and repudiating Marjorie Taylor Green. But give it a couple days. Let's see where we are. 24 hours from now, 48 hours from now, what does the right rally around? Where do the anti-anti-Trumpers come down on all? of this. It'll be interesting to see. Peter Weiner, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. Appreciate it very much. By the way, I strongly recommend Peter's article from The Atlantic, Trump is marching down the road to political violence. You can find it in The Atlantic or, or online. Peter, thanks for coming back. Thanks a lot, Charlie. Take care. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow and we will do this all over again.